Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, coming to you again from the COP28 climate talks in Dubai. I'm Ed Crooks and I'm delighted to be joined by three of the world's leading energy experts, I think it's fair to say, all gathered here together in the same room. It's very nice to see you all in person, be able to have this discussion with you in real life as opposed to virtually, which is unfortunately the way we often have to do The Energy Gang. It's a great pleasure to welcome back Energy Gang regular Melissa Lott, who is the Director of Research at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy and also a professor at Columbia's Climate School. And also we have two newcomers. Great pleasure to welcome them both to the Energy Gang today. Julio Friedman, who's the Chief Scientist at Carbon Direct. Thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. And also Morgan Bazilian, who is the Director of the Payne Institute at the Colorado School of Mines. Thanks very much for coming. Lovely. So here we are. At the COP, we're on day nine, talking on the afternoon of day nine. COP's then more than two thirds over. Morgan, you've only just arrived. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Why are you here? Why are you coming so late? What's the point of coming here when there's only four days left? I am putting them on the spot, but but I think it's not a crazy question because I think it actually reveals something pretty interesting about the way that COPs work. But go ahead, tell us about it. Yeah, sure. Well, first I'll say, you know, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller to the show, so that's uh, something to start with. I've been to quite a lot of COPs. I have never counted, but on the order of a dozen or more. And I used to come here or to the COP solely for negotiations. So I would negotiate on behalf of the European Union. Uh, the European Union bloc negotiates together, which is not always known or might not be known to all your listeners. So the individual countries come together and make their decisions. And so I'm very used to being here for negotiations and not the festivities. And those festivities have grown considerably over the years. And so if the ratio used to be, let's say, one government negotiator to one or two observers or advocates or other groups. And now I'm sure that ratio has changed rather dramatically. So I just arrived last night. I'm part of the Irish delegation, which is then part of the EU delegation. And I'm here to sort of help those people in the Irish delegation in particular. So the Minister for Energy and Climate on what's happening in the real talks. That's not to say, so just to add to that, you know, it used to be, as I said, the the ratio was in that one to one or one to two or one to three ratio. Now, a lot of the most important work happens outside of those negotiations, of course. And so things like the global methane pledge is a good example. That's not in the negotiation room. That's not in the negotiation text. And a lot of the more important things are not. But okay, sadly, I'm here for the rather more dry bits of texts that are bracketed and then argued over and people speaking their third language coming in on grammatical errors and things like that. That's what the, the nature of those negotiations are. Yeah, I'm pleased to say I'm not. I'm part of the caravansary that surrounds the COP now. <laughs> this is my seventh consecutive COP, actually. And uh, I have a theory of change around what the COPs are for and how they're going and so forth. But really now, as Morgan just said, a lot of the central work is not done in the negotiating room. It is done in advance of the COP. Sultan al-Jaber said that 95% of the agreements were settled before arrival, actually, which is really important work. And again, but it's not about the specifics of Article 6.4 or something like that. The methane pledge, the $30 billion Abu Dhabi fund, this new carbon management challenge, all of these things are sort of done in advance. And the COP itself has become sort of a forcing function 
for higher ambition and greater action. One of the things that I think is different about this exact COP is actually it represents a pivot from one of those to the other. The past seven COPs have been about raising ambition, making a stronger NDC, having a, a national target, and that the stock take process has been part of that. This is the first global stock take, so it's a very different COP compared to the rest. But now the pivot is towards fielding solutions. How do we actually go from $1.7 trillion to $4 trillion to $8 trillion? How do we actually start fielding and building infrastructure. These questions are now the work of the COP, but that doesn't take place in the negotiating room, it takes place in the rest. And sorry, those numbers, what, that 1.7 trillion to, what was it, 2.4, what's that money represent? Lovely question. The International Energy Agency estimated that last year, the world spent $1.7 trillion on clean energy deployment, $1 trillion on conventional energy deployment. They also estimated that for their one and a half degree scenario, that needed to be 4 trillion by 2030. One of the harsh realities of climate arithmetic is that the longer it takes to do that, the actually more money you need. So if we delay a year or two, it'll be $5 trillion by 2030. But the, the sums of money that are required here are kind of astonishing. This is another thing that's different about this COP compared to prior ones. There is a lot of private sector engagement. They have a climate finance pavilion that's a first and the banks are here for real. They didn't throw the C team out just like, hey, like put up the, the kiosk and hand out tchotchkes. Like, no, the, the, the leaders are here and they're cutting deals and they're making progress through that finance. And this pivot to solutions is really, I think, and y'all tell me if you see it differently, a reflection of where we are with the technology and the conversation. IPCC, climate change is worse than we thought it was, it's happening faster. The technologies, they're cheaper, that's not the problem. They're ready to deploy, we don't have the policies, regulation, permitting, da 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 da, ability to finance in place. So what is the practical pathway forward? What's the solution? We know we wanna solve this, we need to solve it fast. How are we actually gonna do it? And it's a very different feel to some previous ones where, as you said, Julio, we were defining what the ambition was. Is it net zero? Is it 50%? Is it something else? I'm not sure. Is it global? Is it mid-century, et cetera? But to your point then, as you say, about not having the policies in place, doesn't that actually put the burden really back onto the kind of work that Morgan's going to be doing? And that activity in those small, I was going to, about to call them the smoke-filled rooms. I'm sure they're not actually smoke-filled anymore, but metaphorically smoke-filled rooms, the, the rooms behind the scenes where those officials are meeting, actually isn't that the thing that actually drives this whole other kind of superstructure of everything that goes on in the private sector? So I'm gonna say one thing, and then I'm curious how much y'all disagree with me, which is that I think that what's happening in this room is important, absolutely important. It's absolutely important to have these targets, to have these goals, to put words to these concepts. But what's happening outside of those rooms is equally critical. And I'm gonna say equally, it might be more. I know, I was about to say more, Julio. But if, if this is how I'm thinking about it. If you don't have one or the other, you end up in really bad spots. We need both. If you don't catalyze private sector finance, we know that we are not getting anywhere. So that one, absolutely, that's even more important. But that's how I'm thinking through it. Tell me where y'all disagree. I don't disagree with that. I, I think most of the more significant things coming out, as I've said, are outside of the negotiations. So things like the Global Methane Pledge and the other acronym heavy pledges and announcements and funds that are stated. There's two issues that I think about in those. Is one, not everyone is really all that focused on climate change. And there's very few countries here who have climate change as an actual political or economic priority in their own country outside of a few outliers that are mostly 
island nations that are sinking. So that's one. So despite this buildup and the use of the term ambition and action and all the rest, this is uh, sort of the definition, especially with the Pope being here, of singing to the choir or speaking to the choir. So that's one thing. I think the other is that um, while those announcements and those pledges are very important and they take on that same voluntary genre that the Paris Agreement took on, and that's great. Many of them die without anyone doing very much about them. So there's an awful lot of effort on pledges and side events and reports and careful acronym definitions that are cute and could do good things, but in a lot of cases simply fade away. So I rather strenuously think actually, that we are past the point now where the climate negotiations contribute anything substantial, really. Um, so the, the Paris Agreement was a seminal change. That really was liftoff. Like that got us off the ground. And, and literally that changed from like the circular firing squad that was the Kyoto Protocol to a weight loss club where everybody gets to play. And so it's a very different way of doing business, but it was hugely transformational because everybody could do something and that brought all the countries into a collaborative space. Now, that has been the booster rocket that got us into orbit. It's not gonna get us to Mars. Like, like we need a completely different set of actions and engagements. And frankly, if Article 6.4 collapses, it won't stop the national commitments that are made. It won't stop the policies in Europe and these other sorts of things. I really think that as a forcing function, the COP is useful, but the actual negotiations don't deliver the thing that needs to be done. Okay, I was twitching until that last statement, which I totally agree with. It's a forcing function. It makes us all be here. So if nothing else, it's gravitational pull that gets all the private sector people here. And Ed is dying. Right. But no, no, there's, two, no, there's two other things that I think are really important though about the COP. I was like, we don't need to do these every year anymore. Like we get, and a bunch of people smacked me back and they were like, no, <laughs> that's not true. But one of them is that actually a lot of small nations, this is their only platform. They don't really weigh in at Davos. They don't really weigh in at New Park Climate Week. This is actually the one place where the whole world comes together at a company like Papua New Guinea has a voice. Like, and that's hugely important. It's actually hugely, hugely important. And I don't want to discount it. Right. So modest proposal, what you do is you shut down all the intergovernmental negotiations. None of that happens. And you just keep the festival aspect of things and you keep the kind of the climate Coachella and all the private sector and all the non-governmental organizations and all the civil society groups and even all those there. people come. We, is it, are and, any of us there? I'm well, not I, sure that would work. That's the, the risk is if you pull the, the pituitary gland out of the animal, it stops growing. Like, like I, I'm, I would be nervous about that outcome. And this is actually really organized by ministries of foreign affairs which are important in most governments. So if you suddenly told the diplomats, like you don't got a job anymore, I think they would be like, well, wait a second, then what's all this about? Like they would, they would retreat. Um, but I think it is also the case though, that especially in the media context, like reporting on like, what's the final state of the negotiations? Like, hey, you're missing the lead here. Like the lead are actually all the other things that Morgan talked about that are really delivering change. Morgan, what do you think? Um, they were, let, let them continue that. Well, yeah, all right, go on then. I, I do want to come back to something you said earlier about it depends on where we, where we are. Yeah. Like, I actually meant that quite literally, not just like in, in time, like Dubai is a different kind of place. So, but Sultan Al-Jaber is very serious about business. And he said, like, like, I want this to be a business focus. I want it to do these things. Not only that, but the concentration of wealth 
the concentration of fossil fuels, it really adds a different cast to this whole thing. So I think the physical location of this COP, we'll see at the end of the day, but I think that it's really, again, it's changed the tenor of, of the way th where business is done here. So Morgan, you tried to stay out of this conversation earlier, but I do want to try and drag you back in on this specific point, which is, what is the continuing value in the intergovernmental negotiations, the final statements that come out? Is this something you think that is worth um, continuing to put a lot of effort into and have a lot of focus on? And is it the thing which, despite everything we've been saying about how much valuable work happens outside those central negotiations, there is still something that's really useful that's being done in that diplomatic work and those statements that are made and the agreements that countries reach here? So I've worked in the UN system for, for quite a while at both the UN itself and then at the World Bank. And when I started at the UN, I was told by an old hand at, at, at the UN, Morgan, you, you really seem to be very focused on doing things and deliverables. And that's a big mistake. <laughs> because what you, what you should be focused on is process. And I think, you know, it took me quite a long time to understand what I was being told and how to put that in practice, because I'm fundamentally very practical. And I'm still not sure I, I, I fully get it. But I, I think there is something just in the process of diplomacy on this topic with a table of 199 countries or whatever it is now that is fundamentally important outside of the delivery and outside of the agreements that come in. So the agreements always come in at the very last hour and that, that they tried to change that here with this sort of nice, cute uh, agreement on loss and damage on the first day, great. I, I don't think that's the important part. I think the process is the important part. And I think it's actually more important now than it has been in the past. And I say that for an entirely non-climate reason, which is that in my view, the United Nations itself has at least one or maybe two existential problems that it's facing. Uh, the most obvious being that Russia is on the Security Council as it for the, actually not for the first time, for the third or fourth time, invades another sovereign state and keeps a seat permanently on the Security Council. So when you have something like that that should be existential to an organization and yet are able to continue fostering diplomacy on another topic, that has some use, that has some value to the international community. And so as a committed internationalist, even though I can't stand the fact that we somehow they cannot reform the United States, the United Nations Security Council after 40 years and trying about 500 times, we still have this, and it's civil, and we sit there. And you know what you wouldn't have seen if you don't go into the negotiations is so I used to walk in a, 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 as Ireland or as part of I, I, Irish delegation. So in in the United in, in the English alphabet, that is Iran, Iraq. Ireland, Israel. In French, it's a, it's a slightly different one, but in English, you, you have that. So we would walk in and I would always watch, as I, especially as a young diplomat, the Minister of Foreign Affairs sort of get quite a lot of joy saying, 
which way are you going to walk in? From the left or from the right? Get to your seat. In other words, you're walking this way or that way. And so just by the fact that it exists and that the process exists, there's some validity to it, especially, again, as I said, during this really huge crisis in confidence at the UN. And I will say, I've been reflecting on a comment that um, along these lines that Michael Weber made a couple days ago when we were recording, and I, I took it with me when I went into my UN discussions about what we're doing in this you know, next bit to prep for the next COP. And so the idea of, what did he say, Ed? The super emitters have to look low-income economies in the face, the ones who are facing the worst impacts of climate change, and have a discussion. You sit next to each other. You walk mm -hmm. in together. And there is value in that. There is value in having that conversation and having a communication pathway. Because when communication breaks down, that's when I really get worried, when we can't have a conversation even to air differences and disagreements. And in terms of climate, and it's a global action, it's collective action, if that stuff starts breaking down, we have bigger problems, which is why I go back to I don't know if I want to say equal because they're not the same, and that implies maybe the same. I don't want to say one is more important than the other. I think they're actually, it's, um, what is it, a symbiotic relationship. You need both, and they actually need each other to thrive. I think that's how I think about COP. Now, from a financing perspective, I'll repeat what I said before, which is the money, this is not going to be paid for all by governments. You have to have massive private capital mobilization. You have to have massive private sector actions that come from all this. But you need this entire organism to be healthy and to be functioning. I will say my own discussion with private institutions has been they are ready to go. They have capital. Yeah. They have clear ideas about how they want to invest in infrastructure or clean energy projects in the developing world, whatever. They also need governments. Mm -hmm. They need governments to help reduce the risk, to create larger frameworks for them to act in. So I don't want to give the impression either that somehow I believe that like you can just lop off the top of this organization and we'll all be fine. I think that's also inaccurate. But to the extent that there are barriers to those kind of capital flows into decarbonization, the barriers are not really to do with there not being enough international agreements, right? They're to do with what happens at the individual national level. It's governments who, for instance, don't want to cut fossil fuel subsidies or whatever. They have their own political imperatives. Well, and you're starting to see that happen. You're now starting to see this manifested that climate solutions, progress on climate is actually manifested through bilateral agreements now between, say, Japan and Chile, um, as a, as a, or through, uh, you know, Denmark to Kenya, that, that there's these smaller countries that are taking larger action and are laying these platforms, actually. And uh, in a very different context, you're seeing much larger efforts through, say, the Belt and Road. Uh, which is a whole series of bilateral agreements between China and other nations. Not clear that's going to deliver <laughs> climate abatement. Well, no, but it's right. changed a lot, right? I mean, the, right. the focus of the Belt and Road Initiative, which was very much involved in coal, has turned away from that in a very sharp way, right? In the past few right. years, there has been a very dramatic shift in China's strategy there. But most of these are not multilateral actions. Sure. They're bilateral actions. It's government to government as opposed to 10 nations pooling together. So we'll see how this all plays out. I'm, I am prepared to be wrong and humble about all of this, but I, I do sense this rather different sensibility about deal flow and fielding solutions and rolling up your sleeves and getting into it. In, in the last six COPs, it hasn't quite been that way, but I feel that this COP. So looking specifically at COP28 then, 
as I say, we're in the afternoon of day nine here. What's the most interesting thing that you've seen here so far, or the most significant thing? What are the things you think people should really be paying attention to? Morgan? I think at the, uh, the first week, I was just paying attention from my office in, in Colorado, and it, it seemed we work a lot on methane emissions, and there's certainly an enormous amount of uh, effort on methane emissions at the, at the very high level of pledging and, and uh, saying that there's going to be funding and things like that. So, so I, I, that builds on other COPs. So that builds on COPs a couple of years ago, and a global methane pledge going up from 50 countries to 100 countries, 150 countries, whatever it is today. So, I, you know, I think that's one of the really exciting ones. The, the, the issue I have, just going back to what you were talking about before on finance, because if you ask the average person here who's well-versed in the vocabulary of a cop and say, what am I watching? or What am I looking at? The typical journalistic question. They will all point out something about finance. The difficult part is getting funds to countries that are poor and do not have the administrative capacity in general or institutional capacity to, in all cases, to handle those funds. And yet, their, the bulk of their citizens are living in, in poverty. And, and getting large financial institutions to get down to that place, and even getting places like the World Bank that should be, in my view, almost solely focused on what they would call the IDA countries, or at least felt countries, uh, remains hugely difficult. We, we know why that's difficult for the organizational reasons, for the Forex reasons, for the cost of capital reasons, on and on, they're very easy relatively easy to discern what the problems are, the solutions are still lacking. And, and that really should be the focus of the finance piece. Do you have a sense of what the solutions could be? What are the potential ways forward for that? Well, you know, it, over the last years, certainly at the World Bank, there's been a shift in the funding to a certain extent from middle income or emerging economies who have access to the Chinese Development Bank, who have access to the Brazilian National Development Bank, who have access to capital markets, um, to not need or not want that funding because, well, quite frankly, it's a hassle for them. Where you want to see the IDA countries, the, as the bank calls them, the, the, the less developed countries, really become the bulk of the, say, 60 to $100 billion lending portfolio that goes out and even that lending can be excused in a lot of cases. Um, that, that's one. There needs to be an awful lot of um, focus on guarantees, different kinds of guarantees, sovereign guarantees, lo uh, risk guarantees, partial guarantees, etc. There are places that can do that, even at the World Bank, uh, at its, its so-called MIGA, M-I-G-A. Um, and then you know, finding different ways to fund the risks of uh, foreign exchange, cost of capital, et cetera. And look, th those are well-known things. They're just very, very difficult to put in practice. And private sector players do not almost ever have the ri risk appetite or the time to do that kind of stuff. I don't disagree. I agree with pretty much everything you said, but there's Things that show change, let's put it this way. Among them, the Bridgeton Initiative, led by Barbados and Mia Motley and, and her team of advisors. They've already gotten, for example, the, the pause clause 
into these things, which is great. The pause clause says, hey, if your country has been devastated by a natural disaster, your debt's suspended for two years. That was like hugely transformational. It took a long time to organize, but that's one example. Similarly, the Bridgeton Initiative is focused in a very real way on the foreign exchange risk and how to manage and reduce that, and I think they're making progress. I would also add that um, there's a begun to be a recognition by uh, the global south or developing nations that debt forgiveness doesn't help them. So a lot of rich countries are like, hey, we forgive your debt, and they're like, we've already paid it three times. Why? Like, it doesn't help us. We actually need investment. Uh, I would call out actually a friend uh, in Kenya, James Mwangi, who says, look, this is not something that nations, other nations will do to Africa. They will not do it for Africa. It will all be done by Africa. We just need the investment. Give us the, give us the ball coach. Like that's what they're saying. The risk appetite is exactly the crux of the biscuit, but that ends up opening up roles for regional banks, multinational banks, and they haven't had that focus quite this way before, in part because we haven't had net zero as a framework for that long. We haven't had this sort of recognition that we are far behind and falling farther behind. That growth of ambition over the past seven COPs, I think, is starting to force some of these institutions to try different things uh, in a very real way. So you're not wrong, but I'm pretty optimistic about where we're going. And what else are you thinking about then? Putting to you the same question I just put to Morgan, what have you seen through these nine days that's been most interesting to you? So there's been some big sectoral changes that make me happy. I try to find in previous COPs a serious discussion about nuclear energy. This is a nuclear COP. And again, it's part because Dubai and the Emirates are kind of interested in nuclear energy. But, but that has become a big theme of the discussion. There's been a huge discussion here about sustainable aviation fuel. That's really kind of new. But the ICAO is pushing it, a UN organization, the International Civil Aviation Organization, their standards become mandatory in four years. That's a pretty strong forcing function. So everybody's like, holy cow, if we built every sustainable aviation fuel plant on, that's been announced, we'll fall short by a lot. We, get, we need to tie our shoes here, guys. We need to get going. That's been a welcome conversation. Uh, as a carbon management person, I'm thrilled to see not only the carbon management challenge come forward, which is, I think, a substantive and real change, but also, this is the first COP ever to talk seriously about CO2 removal. And the arithmetic is in. We know we have to do that. Nobody's serious is saying you do that instead of reductions. Everybody's begun to say, yes, we must do very deep reductions and we must also do substantial removals. The, that has become sort of a totemic aspect of this talk, COP, which is different. Uh, last thing I'll say is a lot of the favorites of prior COPs are also here. Focus on... Uh, youth and gender, focus on indigenous peoples, the need for oceans. These things are, are perennials at the COP and they haven't gone away either. But seeing greater representation of the hard to abate sectors, some of these really difficult decisions is welcome. Thanks. So Melissa, I think it's been about three days since we last spoke, all of that. You mean three weeks. <laughs> but, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> In that time, what else other things have you seen or what have you been most struck by? Yeah, so I won't go over um, what we talked about last time. I'll add a couple things to it. Um, one, to Julio's last point, the number of times I've been like grabbing a tea in the run between meetings and someone's talking about low carbon steel or cement plugs on orphaned wells or something like that. 
I've been a bit blown away by it. It's just, I mean, I don't think they're following me from the coffee shop to the coffee shop. Um, so I think it's a representation of the number of people who are here who are really focused on these tricky to abate things. This all the way to net zero stuff. We're not stopping at 50 or 80 anymore. We're going to net zero. What do we need to do today? The other thing that I've been hearing and been engaged in the past, I guess, 48 hours has been really around how the politics of the next elections are going to impact and are impacting the rooms you're going to step into. So yes, a practical pathway to net zero. I'm thinking about the phase down, phase out, where these different carbon removal technologies come in, all of that. There's what the science is saying, what the transition pathways say, and then there what is politically okay in a lot of these situations. And those things are gonna play out in the negotiations. I'm super curious where you're gonna to get to between those bands, you know, mm-hmm. um, in the words that are actually ending on the page. And I do think that politics piece of it will be important and is important. Something somebody said to me at this cop, it hadn't crystallized in my yeah. mind until this person said it. There are 50 major elections next year. Yeah. India, the United States, mm-hmm. like there are 50 major, that's a third of the world just in nations, but I mean, it is, it, is a, it is going to really change the way that this happens. And it's consequential in a way that has not been obvious before. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I uh, find that quite as compelling. At COP26, the Russians came with a net zero plan that they proudly produced in front of everybody. Net zero, I think they said by 2060, so it was along the lines of uh, say South Africa or some, some developing economies, and you know at that point they were amassing troops in Ukraine, yeah. Ukraine's border. It's very easy to come up with um, announcements that are utterly farcical—not uh, farcical from their perspective, but from all the rest of ours. And so, yes, I think uh, sure the politics plays into these things. But the strength of going with a bottom-up voluntary paradigm, which you say is a, uh, changing, the, the Paris was, sort of g- gets us a little bit out of h- how much can be affected by one or 50 countries' political uh, uh, changes, especially if the big announcements and the big actions and the big acronym-filled organizations are happening outside of the negotiations anyway. mm Butts in seats. Butts in seats make a difference. It matters what butt is in what seat. And imagine how this process would have played out if we had had a President Gore as opposed to a President Bush. Like, it matters. The fact that, that Narendra Modi is so bullish on climate matters to the world, actually. And if he's not elected and somebody else comes in, that will matter to the world. And it's not, it may not matter to the negotiations and it may not matter to the process, but actually I think these elections are going to prove to be wildly consequential. If Europe has a rightward tilt to populism and five European nations start pulling back from the European Commission around climate, that will be consequential. So I don't want to underestimate any of this. And we have no time. We can't overshoot the overshoot. We're already an overshoot. We can't lose another five years to politics. And so uh, the nervousness around elections around the world, not just in the US, but everywhere, is quite palpable here. My first cop was in Marrakesh. It was right after Trump was elected. Everyone was flapping like wet hens, saying the sky is falling, you know. Uh, To your point, it didn't turn out as bad as people had completely feared. But 
we lost time and ground and the elections matter to how nations engage. Well, and I'll say two quick things. And the second one, Ed, preview, is going to be asking you what you are seeing. Same question you gave us. I want to ask you. I'm, I'm going to be a little bit cheeky and do that. But before that, what I'm going to say is the feeling of politics affecting the conversations that I am either directly in or tangentially involved in is more, it's not even, it's not already at the stage of who gets elected next and what might it look like. It's saying the process towards that election, like how is that influencing what we're bringing to the table right now? When we are concerned about our position, when we're concerned about getting reelected, we're concerned about having power or not in the future, and what does what we do here impact in that process? And one reflection I keep coming back to myself is, wow, it matters. I don't know that we would have said that it mattered to this degree in those kind of conversations in those elections 20 years ago. It wasn't a deciding thing that people were worried about. If I say draw down, phase out, phase down, that's going to matter enough that maybe it'll affect an election, a lot of elections. Like I just take a, take a moment to just take that in. That's a big deal. But Ed, I promised I was going to ask you too. So my reflection on that, what I've been most struck by, I guess, is something less kind of globally significant, but just personally significant to me, which is that I've been really struck by how valuable it's been to me to be here mm. and how good it has been for this podcast, the energy gang to be here and to get to meet the people we've met and to talk to people we've been able to talk to. I think I was saying earlier, this is my first COP that I've attended in person since 2009. So it's been a long time I've been away. And it's this is really underlined to me, it's been too long. As you say, just because of everything that happens here, all the people who come, the discussions that go on, and that kind of, as you were saying, Morgan, you were calling it the festival aspect of what happens here is really valuable. And it's probably valuable to, as I say, to, you know, to me personally, to this podcast, to my company, the company I work for with McKenzie, which works on research on energy and natural resources. You know, we can't really understand what we need to understand about the industry and about the way it's changing without being, again, that old saying about 90% of life is just turning up. And to your point about the value of the negotiations being in people talking together in rooms from very different backgrounds, very different countries, having very different sets of interests and so on, being physically present in the same place has a real value. I think that's something that was sort of underlined actually in the pandemic when we couldn't do it for a while. And I think that's a lesson which we're kind of relearning again. And I, certainly I do think that's very important. So I think we're just about out of time, unfortunately, because I know a lot of you have got other meetings to get off to. So we do have to be wrapping it up just about. Sorry, Julia, there's one thing you wanted to take. Uh, I have yeah, one last question. Lightning round, I'll be super fast. Yeah. A lot of people here have been talking about like, ugh, 80,000 people flying around the world to come to this. Is it really a big deal? And I'm like, this is one event in Wembley Stadium. Like this is like 80,000 people, like it's a single sporting event. Like you gotta organize yourself, true up to what's actually happening here. And this whole, the only reason why people are here is to counter climate change. So I'm not worried about the footprint or the optics of these sort of things. I'm a little more worried about the footprint of the optics of the maybe $8 billion of yachts sitting in the marina. Like that's a different kind of look. And so hopefully though, that will bring more ambition and commitment as well. Absolutely. So, uh, final thoughts. Then we're all going to be leaving soon. I think I'm, I know you're going home, Morgan. You're going to be here a bit longer, right? Because you'll stick it out to to the bitter end. And as you say, that that final statement coming out of the talks, I'm interested in what you're going to take away from having been here. Maybe Julio, start with you. Just when you think about the experience, what you've learned here, does it leave you more or less optimistic about the world's ability to tackle the challenge of climate change? Unquestionably more optimistic. 
And part of the reason why I said at the beginning that like the last seven years have been about boosting ambition, boosting ambition involves a lot of yelling at people. If you're fielding solutions, it's the opposite. Fielding solutions is a cooperative enterprise. And so I'm seeing people who normally don't sit together, who normally don't play nice doing that. That is core work of the energy transition. And I've seen a lot of that here. So I'm pretty happy. So Morgan, I mean, for you, it's, I guess it's too early to say, right? Because you're going to have to see what happens over the next four days. But what do you think you'll leave with? No, no, it's not too early. And I won't stay till the bitter end. Bless them. Um, <laughs> look, I, I, I come out, I, I think this is, uh, has been a, a really positive cop. There, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of momentum, um, but not necessarily because of everyone's focus on climate change. So I, I think that there's a lot of momentum here because the low carbon technologies we're talking about have gotten a lot closer to be or, or, or already are economically viable and uh, distributed and able to move to different countries and accessible to, to all kinds of different places. And that um, certain amounts of financial capital that are significant can then therefore move into those solutions. I still don't believe that very many people have climate change as the driving force. And I think transacting everything through a climate lens uh, tends to be myopic. And, um, and so, yes, there's been a lot of positive things uh, we, we've heard about, we've even discussed in this last hour, um, but, but not only for the climate reason. And no, I never stay till the very bitter end. Melissa, what about you? Um, I have this feeling, I swear it's optimistic, y'all. <laughs> and even that sounds a, a little tired. We've been running. I think, what do we say? A day at COP is like a week at COP or a week in the world. You just, you're going, 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 going. There seems like a lot more wind at our backs to the points that we've been talking about than there was before. Um, I just have this sensation that I need to buy so many more pairs of running shoes because when I leave COP this year, I'm just gonna need to run faster. And we're all just running faster because there are so many things at play that make it very urgent, but that also make it possible and even more possible to bend this curve. And that's an interesting thing to come out of it because you could come out of some of these conversations feeling very pessimistic and I just feel like I need to lace up. I'm like, all right, time to go. So that's where I'm at leaving COP, even though, man, I'm gonna take a nap, <laughs> at least for <laughs> one day when I get out of here, just, just yeah. one day with a nap. Naps are good, <laughs> yes, right? indeed. As so you say, you rest first, but after that, the work starts. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I know now you have to go and do more work yourself around yes. the COP, so I'm gonna let everybody go, but thank you very much indeed, all of you, for joining us on The Energy Gang uh, today. Melissa Lott, Julia Friedman, Morgan Brazilian, thanks very much indeed. Um, thanks very much to all of you for listening and keep following us. We will be carrying on ourselves right to the bitter end at The Energy Gang, following all the uh, discussions and negotiations as they continue right to the conclusion on December the 12th. So keep tuning into The Energy Gang wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you very soon. Until then, goodbye.